Yeah, if you do have a copy of God's Word, we'll be in Esther chapter 9. We're actually looking at uh, three chapters, Esther 8 to 10, but we're going to focus particular attention on chapter 9. We've been looking through this book of the Bible, somewhat, uh, probably a little bit more neglected kind of book. You may uh, have a basic idea of the storyline. I'm sure there's parts of this story that you've never thought of before. I know that was the case with me. Uh, it's been a privilege to study it. I'm going to ask Eli Henniger to come. She's going to begin reading in verse 20 of Esther chapter 9 and read uh, through the remainder of that chapter. Thank you, Eli. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the day on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had, that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had been obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Thank you, Eli. How do you make sure that you don't forget something that is important to you? Maybe it's a a particular thing that was good that happened, and you, you always want to remember, like, this happened, and you don't... You want to make sure you don't forget it. Or maybe there was something that was extremely tough that you made it through. And it impacted you so much. You said, I, I don't want to forget this. Or maybe it's someone that really, really matters to you. What do you do? I, I think there's lots of different things that we do. You might take a picture of something. And by taking that picture, you're trying to at least capture that moment in time. Maybe you post it, or more rare these days, you actually get it printed. 
and you put it somewhere to say that this matters. I, I don't want to forget this particular day or this particular occurrence. Maybe you keep some sort of memento, some sort of reminder. So I may be a tad bit of a pack rat on these things, but I keep things close to me that matter. So if you look at my wallet, there are little notes that my kids have written. If you look at my wallet, there's a, a $5 bill, but it's from the country where, where Vern and Pam serve. And it's a reminder of the trip I took, and I'm, I'm reminded that of the work they do, and it, it reminds me to pray for them and think about a world that doesn't know Christ. There's not too many places you go, that, that I go, at least that are close to me, where you won't see some remembrance that I have of my dad. Pretty much everywhere around my life, I'm seeing reminders of him. On my desk, it's a picture of my wife and I from a vacation a few years ago. These are, these are reminders Maybe you put something on a, a, a calendar, a physical calendar, a digital calendar, cause, and you, you set a reminder, I want to remember this, because this matters to me. I, I, I lead with that because that is exactly what's going on at the book, end of the book of Esther. So we've gone through this book over the summer, and you come to the end, and the portion that Eli just read, Esther 9.29 says, these days, what all that happened in the book of Esther, these days should be remembered. These days should be observed. The commemoration of these days should not cease. What, what happened in the book of Esther should be remembered. And I want to drill down on that because I, I do believe God is very interested in us remembering. This follows a long line of remembering. It's the flood. Remember the rainbow is a token to remember. Remember what God had done. Remember the promise he had made. And it came to Passover. Remember that you escaped the judgment of God and you went out of Egypt and you came to the Red Sea and God delivered you there. Remember, they were even to put stones in the, in the Jordan River as kind of a memorial, a marker, saying we want to remember, we don't want to forget. The stories we remind ourselves, the things we remember, they're valuable to us. They say something significant about who we are. And when we come to the book of Esther, even as we're winding it down here, I want us to see how it ends. We won't be able to cover every verse in chapters 8, 9, and 10, but I do think we'll, we'll cover some. And as we get an overview of what happens in these final notes, I, I want us to keep in mind what God wants us to remember. If you were here last week, if you've been tracking with the series in Esther, Esther chapter 7 seems like it's just the wrap-up. It seems like everything's happened. You know, they've taken care of the enemy of God's people. So there's a wicked man named Haman who plotted to end the lives of the Jews. And in Esther 7, he's finished. He's executed as an enemy of the state. But you turn over to chapter 8 and you realize there's a mess that he left that still has to be cleaned up. Although he's gone, there's still a mess. And that mess largely is he got the king to pass a law that could not be changed. That on a certain day, several months out, the people of Israel could be attacked, could be killed, could be destroyed, could be annihilated. He, the king had foolishly signed a proclamation of genocide against the Jews. This couldn't just be, well, uh, I'm just kidding, guys. I mean, that's not the way it worked in that empire. There were laws, and those laws could not be revoked. And Esther 8, Esther doesn't ride off into the sunset, but rather we see her going back to the king and begging for help. 
If you have your Bibles in front of you, I mean, you see that in Esther chapter 8. She immediately pleads, and what she's pleading for is that the Jews have some help here against this decree against them. And, and actually, her, her pleas to the king turn into authorization by the king for self-defense of the Jews. He issues another edict. This is where justice gets kind of complicated sometimes, even in the a country that has laws that are world-renowned. Justice is complicated. And the best the king knows to do is say, well, I know I said there's an order that everybody can kill the Jews if they want. Now I'm going to give an order that they can actually defend themselves and push back and kill their enemies. The Jews can take care of the enemies if in self-defense. There's so many interesting things as both, both of these edicts, one of them is given in Esther 3 and the other is given in Esther 8. And in some ways they're very similar, in some ways they're very, very different. The author, I think, wants us to think of them together as one is just creating such a mess and the other is trying to deal with it. In Esther chapter 3, this edict kind of was under the cloak of secrecy. Sign right here, king, nobody needs to know. The, Haman didn't even tell who he was trying to eliminate, what race of people, but in Esther chapter 8, Esther makes everything razor sharp clear of what she's trying to do. In Esther 3, Haman's calling the shots. Esther 8, actually, Mordecai is the one calling the shots. Verse 9, he's the one commanding the writing. In in chapter 3, there's an edict that if you don't like this group of people, you can kill them and Verse 11, the Jews get a proper authority to defend themselves, to gather. There's words used in, in verse 11 of chapter 8 to, to kill, destroy, and annihilate. Those words are used against the Jews in chapter 3. Now the Jews have authorization to do that to their enemies. Couriers are sent out in both chapters. Chapter 8 in verse 10 and verse 14, it's kind of speedy news it needs to get out quick because the the Jews have to organize some sort of self-defense verse 15 you see Mordecai going out to the people and and it's an interesting verse in Esther chapter 8 and verse 15 it says Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white and and he went to the city of Susa and and this whole city shouts and rejoices that was not what was going on With the first edict, the whole city was thrown into confusion, chapter 3 tells us. The Jews went from being fearful to verse 16. It says they had light and gladness, joy and honor. It's very different times. And this book is summarizing and and these are the kinds of things we're supposed to remember. Esther chapter 9 is a pretty brutal chapter. It's one of of those brutal ones in the Bible. The, The day arrives for battle. So remember, there was this decree that on this particular day... We've got competing decrees, uh, like a, a civil war is instigated here. Some can kill the Jews, the Jews can defend themselves by killing others. It's, it is a mess. But notice what it says in Esther chapter 9 and verse 1, this organized counterattack. It says, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, Notice the writing here. It's superb. It says, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. 
The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents, they even helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. The day of battle has come and something strange has happened As the Jews have organized a a plan to defend themselves, there's a reversal that's happening. It's quite a bloodbath. If you read read all of chapter 9, what you would read is in the city of Susa, on this instigated civil war, on the first day, 500 in that city alone were killed from those that were trying to attack the Jews. The Jews killed 500 of their enemies, 10 sons of Haman. Esther's not done. Esther goes to the king, says, we need another day. We've got more enemies that are are trying to destroy us. We need to deal with them. And the king grants her request again. And on the second day in Susa, 300 more are killed. That's what it says in in verse 15. So we have, if we're counting, 800 total in Susa are killed. And and, in verse 16 of Esther chapter 9 says, actually 75,000 total in the whole empire were killed. This is brutal. This is a bloodbath got 800 in one city and we got 75,000 all throughout the empire motivated by hate that have attacked the Jews and the Jews have killed them in self-defense. This is what scripture says. When you read these kind of numbers, when you come to these portions of scripture, there is a temptation. There is a temptation to just kind of pretend they don't exist. There, there is something, and, and we'd be foolish not to recognize, there is something troubling about the God, the author of life, and we read about such death, such vicious brutality going on. Maybe one of the obstacles that people have even to believing the Bible is you read this stuff and you go like, how how is this even okay? Is it okay? What is going on here? What kind of world is this? And so I'd just like to take a moment and think through this together as we think about 75,000 that were killed. I mean, I've read of battles where, you know, tens of thousands were killed and I never walk away from those feeling great. I always walk away feeling quite sad at just the carnage of human life. What should we think about this? Here's a couple thoughts. We, we won't exhaust the subject. First of all, the Bible doesn't sanitize brutal stuff. You know, it's not as if we read through Scripture and like, ooh, that, that one doesn't look so good. Let's tear that page out. And ooh, that one's pretty bloody, pretty vicious there. Yeah, it'll bother people if they, they read that. Come 2017, where we all live in pretty nice conditions and you know, we're not so close, praise God, like not so close to the razor's knife of, of, of death and war. And we're not thinking about our aunts and our grandparents and our kids and our grandchildren. And hey, we'll just tear that one out. They won't know how to deal with that. The Bible does not do that. Have you noticed that? We don't even have to pretend that everybody in Esther or any portion of the Bible always acted honorably. The Bible doesn't push us to do that. It tells us a story of real life. And if we actually did live in war-torn countries, this would seem very, very understandable to us. Second, I would say the, the story of Esther isn't necessarily about you and me booing or cheering the characters. It's not as if we're reading like the, the gossip column and we're cheering for so-and-so in a celebrity divorce because we think she had some real good... This is not that. This is real life. These are real stories, and we're, we're meant to be imported into this story that God is telling us. 
Certainly we don't cheer for Haman, and we don't cheer for those that have set themselves against God's people, but we recognize this, this is a mess, and we just recognize that on the surface. I think the third thing that helped me most in processing the 75,000 dead in two days is a recognition, is a recognition that this was a massively complicated, organized plot to annihilate the Jews. That's what precipitated this whole thing. So this is what you begin thinking. Okay, 800 people, imagine 800 people in your city that had made a complicated plot to end you and your whole race. Imagine 75,000 people in your nation who were willing, despite what the king had just said, authorizing self-defense, said, I don't care if I do get killed, it's worth it to purge our country, our nation of these people. I mean, this is no small thing. Esther's not just like a whiner over small things. This is a massive plot organized well. If in a moment 75,000 people have actually attacked the Jews, how many more were in the empire? This is significant. These are dark times. When I read a book, I, I remember several years ago reading the book Flags of Our Fathers and it told the Battle of Iwo Jima, and this was brutal. I mean, it was, imagine waking up every day, kill or be killed. This is what it feels like, especially when you get to Esther 9. Another thing that I understand about Esther 9 is this is legally authorized self-defense, not vigilante justice. So it's not as if the Jews in Esther 9 say, well, we'll do whatever we want to do. They've been authorized by the king. God prevents Christians from just like, oh, I'll, I'll take matters into my own hands by Romans 13. But this is justice that is legally authorized. I will say if you come to the book of Esther wanting neat and tidy categories, I think you're going to be severely disappointed with the book of Esther. But neat and tidy categories aren't the world I live in. It's not often how real life feels. Actually, when it seems like it's over, so after, after the bloodbath, 75,000 being killed uh, of Israel's enemies, it seems that when it's over, there's like this collective sigh of relief. Even the chapter seems to acknowledge that. And out of that sigh of relief, spontaneous joy comes over, and, and it turns into this spontaneous joy turns into a, a formalized holiday. Look at, look at some of the verses, and Eli read them earlier. Let's come back to them. Esther chapter 9 and verse 20 says, Mordecai sends letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of the king, and he obliges them to keep these days, to keep this particular, the 14th day and also the 15th day year by year. Keep it because this is the day when the Jews got relief from their enemies. This is the day when sorrow was turned into gladness. This is the day when gifts should be exchanged. This is the day when the poor should be. Let's, let's make sure we don't forget about them. In Esther 9 and verse 26, they, they have a name for these days. It's an ironic name, isn't it? It's the name uh, Purim after, after the, the Pur, the poor that was cast. It's like a, a, a dice that was cast. And how God reversed what that meant. Esther chapter 9 ends with remembering all days. Let's make sure the descendants don't forget. Let's make sure each generation doesn't forget. Let's tell these stories. I think this story of Esther can be a pathway to our own remembering. I think even as I've taught, I feel like the Lord's taught me so much. I do want to share like some of the things that I 
I gained from understanding Esther that I think actually God would call Esther a member. From Esther, we, we ought to remember, this is a time of remembering, we ought to remember that God works in dozens of hidden, non-miraculous ways. God works in dozens, I'm going to say hundreds, I'm going to say millions. God works in dozens of hidden, non-miraculous ways. I've said this every week, but the book of Esther, God's not mentioned, his name's not mentioned. Nobody prays, there's no worship service in the book of Esther. But still, God is at work. I was reading kind of a tight summary of all the different things. You could call them coincidences. I might call them ways in which God is hidden, but at work. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., summarized these really well. I want to read his summary. It says Esther just happened to be Jewish, and she just happened to be beautiful, and she just happened to be favored by the king. And in the book of Esther, Mordecai just happens to hear the plot against the king's life. And a report of that plot just happened to be written in the king's chronicles. And Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai doesn't kneel down before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. While Haman plots his revenge, the the dice just happened to indicate that the date for exacting revenge against all Jews is put off for almost a year. And Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak. And then she happens to put off her request for another day. Her deferral happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to recount it to his friends. And they, in turn just happened to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately to hang Mordecai. Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning. And it just so happens that the previous night, the mighty king could not command a night's sleep. He just happened to have had a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deeds. He then happened to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded, to which his attendants happened to know the answer. Simply consider for a moment the fact that Mordecai happened not to have been rewarded for having saved the king's life. How unusual that must have been. Well, it all just happened. Anyhow, Haman happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. Later on, the king happens to return to the queen just when Haman happens to be pleading with Esther in a way that could be misconstrued. And the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai just happened to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang Haman. So, it's an amazing book where God is very present, even if his name is not used. But I I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about all those things that just happened. I want you to think about the friendships you made or that, that particular job transfer that just happened. That sickness, that, that death, that, that boss that you had, that coworker you had, you just happened to have. I want you to think of the neighbors you happened to have, the school, the school you went to, the, the education you got, the, the miscarriages you had, the cancer diagnosis that seemed to come out of nowhere. I want you to think about the breakups, the severing of relationships, how those just seemed to happen. I want you to think about the lives of your children or, or maybe your nephews or your nieces or your parents. The trips you took, the, the positions that you accepted. 
Do you just happen to feel like that would be the best move? I want you to think about the, the book you happen to read, the stranger you happen to meet. I mean, I think you could trace your life and you could look at it and say, it's just all random happenings. I mean, it just all happened. Or you could see a God who knows how to orchestrate all kinds of details to where you certainly, certainly you know you would not be in the place you are now for good or for, for, for tough times if it weren't for God orchestrating. I, I think God has a reason and I think that reason is to show his power and his might for your good, for his glory. Remember, remember that. When things get random, remember. Remember, second of all, that often God's work brings reversal. We read that in Esther 9.1. The reverse occurred. And that's the whole book of Esther. Haman seems like he's going to be promoted. But then God works through the reversal. He ends up being executed. Mordecai and Esther seem like they're going to be in danger. Their whole life's going to be threatened. But it it ends up, the reverse happens. They're promoted. The enemies of God's people seem like they're going to win. I mean, they're threatening. And then then they're annihilated. God's people seem so endangered. They're in fear and mourning. And by the end of the chapter, they're rejoicing and partying. Things get reversed. God often works that way. If you're a Christian, your life is a story of reversal as well. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but I know if you're a Christian, then your story is actually the story of Jesus Christ. And he was the one who experienced the ultimate reversal. Going from heaven to a cross, being being pronounced and clearly dead. Then the great reversal as he rises from the dead, defeating his enemies. Our story is the same. We're, we're dead in sins, but then there's the reversal. We've been made alive in Jesus. We were guilty before God, but then there's the reversal. We've been made righteous. We were outcasts. Now we're part of the family. But I think that even extends to where we are today. So this is what I know. Sometimes we go through tough times where we feel cast down. And we feel like, is this all that there is going to be? We feel in despair. And, and you may feel that today. You may feel cast down. But I, I promise you, there will be a day where the reverse will happen. If you are in Christ, you will be lifted up. It may be, it may be that you feel haunted and hounded by people that, that seem to just have it out for you. Maybe you dread going to work or dread going back to school because, you know, you're going to have to face people that seem like they have no, nothing better on their agenda than to make your life miserable. But, but I promise you one day, there will be a reversal and you'll, you will feel at rest. Right now, you may be hurting. Your body may be taking you further and further down, deteriorating. One day, there will be a reversal that you will be ultimately healed in the presence of our Lord. Right now, it may be weeping because of this life, but joy comes in the morning. One day, death will come for us should Jesus not come. But then, the reverse will happen. We'll be with the Lord. God's work brings reversal. Let's remember that. Let's remember one more thing in the book of Esther. Let's remember that in the Bible, salvation is accompanied by judgment. Particularly judgment on God's enemies. Hollywood can write some amazing scripts. 
where there really isn't judgment, just everything gets better, you know, that someone has positive vibes and a great attitude and their just sheer will to be nice makes the world a better place. But we all know, we all know, that works like in fiction. But when the world is deeply messed up, it's not as if we can just imagine it back into a better place. But in the Bible, deliverance, salvation is accompanied by judgment. That's certainly true in the story of Esther, but it's actually true in a lot of stories. I was listening to a podcast recently by uh, of Phil Vischer, who is the creator of VeggieTales, and he's a, he's a genius. And he's crazy. And both of those kind of go together a little bit. But one thing that he was telling, he's, he's a master storyteller, but one thing he, he discerned, and it, it was helpful, is like, of course this is true. He said so many of the stories, the movies, the novels that we like, The story goes something like this. The world is messed up, and for it to be made right, someone's going to have to die. The world's messed up. And for it to be made right, someone's going to have to die. He says, I wonder why that story surfaces so often in movies and novels. Maybe it's because it's the story. How could the world be made right without evil actually being dealt with? Can we pretend it never existed? How could justice be satisfied? There's some evil in this world. How can that ever be made right unless some sort of judgment comes? And Esther is a book of deliverance. It surely is, but it comes through some pretty significant judgment. Haman is evil. Haman should be dealt with. Justice should be done, and it is done. His end is catastrophic. And and we would have to pretend the Bible says something it doesn't if we, if we never considered the Bible says salvation comes, but the flip side of that is judgment, especially on God's enemies. I think we get these little tastes of that when we see the flood. It's a picture of judgment. Maybe it's a picture of, of something even worse and greater in eternity. We get a picture of this with the, the plagues in Egypt. What if they're just a taste? something worse. We get a picture of this in the story of the book of Judges. What if it's worse? I, I, I love the pictures of Revelation 21 and 22. New heaven, new earth. And we sang about it a moment ago. This perfect world. But to get to Revelation 21 and 22, you have to read 20 and 19 and 18 and 17 and 16 and 15. I don't know if you've ever read those chapters. God's judgment comes in a strong and mighty way. And then deliverance comes. God's enemies are set down. John wasn't making stuff up. Actually, John's revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus wanted us to know. All these things are just a taste. I think even Esther, the judgment on God's enemies are just a taste of something greater. Those that because of their conscience and because of creation know there's a God or maybe because they've heard a message much like you've heard today and we've sung today of Jesus Christ who went to the cross for for his enemies, who went to bring them back to God. And maybe they've heard that message and they say, I really don't need that. Or maybe creation tells them there is a God they're accountable to and they say, actually, I'm going to be the God of my own world. For those that refuse to willingly submit to God, all too often it's not just, it's not really because they're too bad to submit, it's because they're too good. They don't need God. I wonder if that could be you. Your life just seems to be working all right. You've made a pretty good life for yourself. Is it possible that you're standing alone under God's judgment? 
Esther makes me think of the own judgment I deserved. God says that I, that all of us are under a curse because we're part of fallen humanity. We're sinners at the core. We're distant from God. We rebel. We put other, other gods before God. And then Jesus takes the judgment of God. He stands in for us. He dies so that we could be made right with God. God is just because he's held sin to its account. God is merciful because he justifies sinners through the work of Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus for salvation. Today that might be you trusting in Jesus are spared that judgment because of the work he's done. Esther says, let's, let's not forget. Let's remember. So I'd have, to, I'd have to tell you, like, let's remember these things. What reminders do you need to build in? What reminders do I need to build in? Surely, if we're Christians, surely every day should be, at least sometime in that day, we should recognize what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Surely that should be a, a prayer of thanks, or maybe you're a person that likes to write a, a journal, or maybe when you pray and ask, ask the Lord's blessing on your food, you thank him for what he has done eternally for you. Surely we should remember that. Maybe it re, it's a song that you sing, or you, you tell someone else, my life's been redeemed. I was headed toward nothing, but God spared me. God has delivered me from judgment. Surely, individually, that should be part of our lives. But I would think even as a community... Let's remember. Let's just choose not to forget. Weekly we gather. We sing songs like, for me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but yours. And we remind ourselves weekly. Let's not forget of the salvation that's come. Throughout the week, let's, let's gather in other places and remind each other regularly. That we are a community that, have, that has tasted God's grace. Let's gather even like we did last week. Let's keep doing that regularly where we gather around the Lord's table and we say, remember that body was broken for us and that blood was shed for us. Let's remember. Let's remember like we do four times a year here. Let's remember that we once were dead and just like Christ, we were buried, and just like Christ, we're raised to walk in a new kind of life through baptism. Let's remember. Let's remember at Christmas that God has come in the flesh. Let's remember at Easter that death could not hold him. But Jesus Christ rose again. Let's remember even at Pentecost that the Father has sent the Spirit, and the Son has sent the Spirit. A Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, that indwells us, to build us up. Let's remember as a community. We just take a moment and do that right now. Remember this deliverance, not just the book of Esther, but God's deliverance of you. And then we'll sing. And even before we pray, if there is, you say, Curtis, I, you're, you're saying to remember these things, but I've never experienced it for the first time. I, I've never, like, this is a lot of new information about Jesus doing something for me on the cross. 
I, I need to process it with someone. Would, would you make that known? Maybe a friend brought you or maybe you talked to one of the pastors or someone that has a name tag. In a moment, our, our service will be done. But God's work in your life may not be done. I'd love for you to talk with someone about it. Father, we thank you. We do remember. We remember you and your love being just and the justifier in Christ Jesus. We remember that we have had a great reversal. We remember you are at work in many hidden ways. God, and we declare our lives are yours. Let us live for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.